Welcome to the System Speak podcast, a podcast about dissociative identity disorder. If you are new to the podcast, we recommend starting at the beginning episodes and listen in order to hear our story and what we have learned through this endeavor. Current episodes may be more applicable to longtime listeners and are likely to contain more advanced topics, emotional or other triggering content, and or reference earlier episodes that provide more context to what we are currently learning and experiencing. As always, please care for yourself during and after listening to the podcast. Thank you. Today, we're very excited to welcome back Susan Peace Bannett, who we interviewed again to discuss her recent presentation at the ISSTD and a little bit more about attachment and ritual abuse. Susan Peace Bannett is a social worker, psychotherapist, and author who specializes in the treatment of severe trauma and PTSD. She has worked in the field of mental health for more than four decades in diverse settings, inpatient, outpatient, and medical with adults and children, and trained in Harvard Medical Teaching Hospitals in Boston. She wrote the books The Trauma Toolkit, Healing PTSD from the Inside Out, and Wisdom, Attachment, and Love in Trauma Therapy Beyond Evidence-Based Practice. For these, she has won several awards, including the Alumni Media Award for Written Work by Simmons College School of Social Work and the Silver Nautilus Award for Health and Healing. Susan speaks internationally on the psychological and holistic treatment of PTSD. She lives and has a private practice in Portland, Oregon. Welcome back, Susan Peace Bannett. Thank you for coming back on the podcast again. You're welcome. Just, you can share, if you want to share a little bit about um, what you've been up to with the ISSTD and you, did you present there? Is that right? Yes, I did present, um, I actually presented two workshops there. I presented a talk on the role of attachment, um, and rupture and repair in, um, treating people who've been ritually abused and mind controlled, uh, was one talk that I gave. And the second talk was a lot lighter. It was about improvisational comedy, um, (laughs) for treating trauma survivors. And that was, um, that was a ton of fun. And I presented that second workshop with Lisa Danilchuk, who's on the board of ISSTD. Oh, that sounds really fun. Yeah, it was great. It was a great, um, it was a nice contrast because, of course, treating um, DID and ritual abuse survivors is a really heavy topic and a really important topic. And, um, but it's also, you know, we can all still laugh and rebuild our neural networks with creative expressions such as comedy so they're both important so what does that look like with comedy in therapy with comedy and therapy okay um well i have been um doing improvisational comedy for about the last six years and i also have been performing for about the last five years and what i originally thought was i wanted to get lighter on my feet for presenting work um, and also just have an outlet for performing. 
but what I didn't realize was how um, the games themselves in improvisational comedy, which is not stand-up and it's not sketch, it's not written, it's all completely made up on the spot. And so there's a lot of games that um, improvisers play to kind of uh, develop the neural network skills necessary for performing on stage and being quick and able to what we call yes and what's going on on stage because an argument on stage isn't funny. (laughs) Um, (laughs) It's more funny if people go along with each other and don't get narcissistically injured in that process, right? So that's funny. Um, and, uh, the, what I realized is that I started using, uh, I thought improvisational games would be good for my classes, which are based on my book, the trauma toolkit. I give a seven or eight week class based on that book. And, um, a lot of the people who come to that class, like everybody has PTSD and a lot of them have social anxiety. So to break the ice and to get people looking at each other and relaxing, I thought I'll do some comedy games and, um, it worked beautifully and I still do it. I'll still have sessions where we play some comedy games and kind of get people loosened up because if you're playing, um, a game where you have to interact with each other, you have to look, and then often people are laughing and if they're laughing, they're breathing. And if they're laughing and breathing, they're relaxing. So (laughs) It's, it's turned out to be an awesome uh, part of the class and intervention. Uh, so that's one use for it. The other is that for me, what I found is, um, which surprises me in a way, is that there's actually nothing too dark to laugh about. Um, there's a saying in comedy that um, tragedy plus time equals comedy, right? Clarissa Pinkola Estes calls it the sacred profane. The sacred profane, exactly. And, of course, I would never make fun of anybody or make them the butt of my joke. But when I can engage in a kind of irony or lightness or sarcasm about extreme abuse or the kind of weird, stupid things that happen when people are abusing each other, Um, that are sometimes actually comical, um, and I'm able to engage at that level with my client, they feel really joined with. And it gives them sort of a more observing ego kind of stance towards what's happened to them. It sounds like it walks them right back up the ladder in a polyvagal sense. Yes. Yes, exactly. Because it's that social connection. Like humor, I think humor evolved if it evolved, I think the humor might've been there right from the very beginning, but, um, because animals seem to also have a sense of humor. Um, it's a form of connection, right? So going from the light to the dark, first of all, before we even get into anything about what you shared a little bit, what was that like to be sort of back talking about ritual abuse again with ISSTD? Well, Um, It was amazing because I have presented there. I want to say this was my sixth time. I've kind of lost count. I think this is my sixth year that I presented with them. And, but they have never overtly called for the topic of ritual abuse and mind control to be addressed overtly in any conference I've been a part of before this one. Um, And there was a big call that went out to our special interest group saying, 
the organization really wants presenters from our special interest group to present. And um, I was one of the people that submitted around that because, you know, there's um, what I call in my book organic DID and then what I, I've called, people call it different things, engineered DID or DID that's produced um, in a systematic way by handlers so that they can ma manipulate people and enslave them. Um, so, and a lot of children that are involved in sexual slavery are mind controlled in that way, a very deliberate way. So it's a very tricky treatment <laughs> because, um, part of that, um, conditioning and involves not only torture, but torture in the direction to oppose therapy. So, um, a lot of survivors are conditioned against, therapy, clinical language, clinical interventions, and they're, um, you know, they're taught, they're between a rock and a hard place in terms of wanting to get help, but also being conditioned against getting help, if that makes sense. It does. So, yeah. So ruptures in that setting can be very, like even small ruptures can be big devastations in treatment. And so I really wanted to address that, um, the importance of the alliance and really monitoring one's work uh, for ruptures, both big and small, and then um, knowing how to spot them, knowing how to repair them, and knowing how to address them in the context of being DID and um, ritually abused and mind-controlled. Wow. So let's, let's break it down a little bit. We actually have not on this podcast gone there yet for lots of different reasons except sure. for um a couple guests both colin ross and warwick middleton both just went straight there and so that was on there but we've not responded to it at all yet so can you give us just for the listeners sort of a description of what ritual abuse is or organized abuse or mind control whatever phrasing you're used to using how would you describe that or explain that okay so all those terms mean something slightly different and let's see if I can explain it clearly I'm thinking about a Venn diagram so you have like one circle that's organized abuse and then you have a circle that's ritual abuse and then you have a circle that's um mind control um, so ritual abuse, um, is any kind of, um, or like ceremonial, uh, I want to say religious based, but sometimes that's not the purpose of it, but let's just for the sake of what we're talking about now say there's, there's often a religious or ceremonial or ritual aspect to it. And it's getting abused in the context of that religion or ritual or ceremony group. Does okay. that make sense? Yes. Um, and so um, church organizations, um, satanic organizations, intergenerational cult organizations can all fall into that. Um, but there's also organizations like the mafia and other organizations that do mind control type conditioning and the military also does it in various countries in the world. So while church groups and, and, and um, 
kind of religiously oriented groups can be players other big organizations can be players so you can see there's an overlap between the ritual abuse world and the organizational world does that make sense yes okay and then if you think of the third circle as being like mind control um then um mind control can happen in many settings mind control can happen in families that aren't in any organization they're just really good at controlling people's minds they can happen in psychiatry settings um but mostly they happen in overall organized settings and the reason i believe that ritual abuse um, and mind control are linked from my research and from my sister's research and other researchers is that there and i presented this there's a timeline so after World War II um, ended, the Office for Strategic Services was created, um, which was a forerunner to the CIA. And within that um, group, within the Office of Strategic Services, there were people that created another group. And I'm going to see if I can like pull that, pull that up. Um, and that group was called Scientific Intelligence. So that was in 1949, um, Dr. Willard Mackle. Um, and he was trying to resist Manchurian candidate technology from Russia, and he created this Department of Mind Control. In our government, this is documented. And actually, my documentation for that piece of fact comes from the CIA's own website. <laughs> I have a link to it. Um, so... The timeline is like you had OSS was founded um, in 1942, so even prior to the end of the war. 1945, there was a Operation Paperclip that recruited Nazi scientists for their Manhattan Project and secret mind control programs in the United States. By 1949, it was the Office of Scientific Intelligence that was overseeing that. In 1952, that became Project Bluebird, which became MK Ultra, which is also known by the names of Artichoke, MK Naomi, MK Delta, and QK Hilltop, among others. Um, and this went on as a not too big secret program, not too big of a secret secret program in the government. Um, but eventually, more and more people started to find out about these things, and for a variety of reasons, I won't go into here. It became, it started to become, uh, Congress started to become aware of it, and there became uh, um, an investigation in the Church Committee from 1975 to 1977. In 1973, though, uh, Richard Helms ordered a lot of MKUltra documents to be destroyed, which they were. We still have a lot of documents, though, and they can be found online, and um there's more disclosures being made all the time. So at the end of the church committee, after these Freedom of Information Act disclosures, they ended MKUltra officially. However, we have a lot of people, um, numbering probably in the hundreds, who claim that MKUltra continued. It just kind of went underground. And it went into levels of security that not even the president maybe had access to. So these were highly, um, I, I hate to use this word scientific because it's such an evil technology, but they were scientific. Like these people were brilliant. They were accomplished. 
in the Nazi death camps. They could do all the experimentation they wanted to unfettered. They had a ton of information already by the end of World War II, and they continued their work in various institutions in the United States and Canada and probably other places as well. And Colin Ross has actually written quite a bit about this, too. Yes. Yeah. Um, and he knows, you know, it, and it's interesting because, there's, you know, there's been a media blackout about this in the United States, even when the Canadian, um, the, a group in Canada successfully sued the American government and won hundreds of thousands of dollars for their um, mind control programs, mostly at McGill, but also other places like Canadian. This was common knowledge in Canada and no Americans that I talked to knew about it at all. So they've been very successful in covering it up because, like all, you know, abuse, it's hard to hear about and people don't really want to know about it. Um, at some level, we don't really want to hear these things because they they injure us and they, they make us scared and our mind doesn't want to accept them as reality. So it's, it's sort of when people are like, how could they hide this for so long? It's like, well, A, they didn't, <laughs> and B it's kind of easy to hide something from somebody if they don't want to know about it. Right. Right. So, yeah. So that's kind of the history, the history of that. What I, what I think the interaction is, is that a lot of my clients who have successfully escaped those groups, um, and come out of a lot of their conditioning and programming, um, have done so through spiritual means. So it struck me as a very smart, but evil idea to close spiritual doors for people, which I think is one of the purposes of ritual abuse. That's just my theory. I, I think that um, that is a way, if you can't tolerate having any kind of spiritual connection because it's too triggering, then you've just closed a door for a back door for people to escape out of control and conditioning. And it's smart. <laughs> it's smart to do that. That's profound. Um, That's really profound. Yeah. Yeah, and so I've had clients that had, of course, Christian doors closed because some of their, a lot of the abuse in the West was done in a Christian context, um, but have been able to find their way out through yogic technologies or Buddhism or um, shamanism or other other kind of spiritual technologies and ways of being. When you talk about the formal programs being shut down or going underground for some of those things, I know that's not all of them, but mm -hmm. government ones or other ones, how common is it for those who were then disconnected from the formal experience of that to then grow up and repeat what they had learned in sort of a learned behavior kind of way, even if it wasn't associated with the actual program anymore, like to new generations of children. Do we know? Yeah, it's really hard to collect statistics on this when the official government position of this is, doesn't exist. And the reason that that's been the official position, of course, is that our own government has been involved in it. So it's a it's a um, it's a state secret, basically. It's a top secret. So I actually have a colleague who I won't name, but she was talking to some friends of hers who were in um, the CIA and other program organizations, and she said, well, I know this is going on and blah, blah, blah. And they looked at her and said, um, that's above your security clearance to discuss. <laughs> you know? And she was like, I'm not even in the government. Like, right. So it, they couldn't say anything about it because they didn't, they didn't have permission to talk about it. 
It's just those of us who are stumbling on this because our clients are disclosing it to us. Um, and also people are disclosing a lot through autobiographies um, and also now on YouTube. So that's, that's an interesting uh, it's an interesting turn of events. There's a lot of disclosure happening, and um, some brave souls um, have put themselves out there and will continue to put themselves out there. But mostly those people show up in therapies with therapists who are willing to do this work and then sort of quietly go about healing themselves. The ones, it's like anything else, right? What you, comes back to Freud, whatever is not remembered or acknowledged is destined to be acted out. And that's a very easy way to control people. But the other thing to remember is that when people are split and handled and tortured into compliance and, pro and conditioned, a lot of people don't like the word programmed, but some people do use the word programmed, then it's a whole different thing because they're, like, getting out um, is extremely difficult because of the conditioning and, uh, and the sophisticated level of conditioning because they've been working at this for a long time like they've gotten really good at this the the people who create the, this problem have gotten exceedingly good at what they do and um we therapists i feel like we're always trying to play catch up how how does the therapist besides like joining isstd which we talked about last time you were on how do they learn how to help with this um, well, here's the good news and the bad news. So um, the good news, and this is, I got, there was a woman who wrote a book, um, I believe it's called Unshackled, Kathleen Sullivan, if I'm remembering correctly. Um, she and I corresponded years ago because she had just finished social work school and had extricated herself. And she was very reassuring to me. She said, she was like, hey, my therapist didn't have any special knowledge or skills in this area. She but she was just a really good therapist. <laughs> and she said, you know, she's like, I, extric I extricated myself with her help of just being a good enough therapist. And she's like, if you're good at what you do and you're good at maintaining that, that good therapy relationship and connection with somebody, that's already a lot. And you don't have to have like special deprogramming skills or anything like that. Um, but some people choose to go on and try to get those skills under their belt to also appreciate what they're up against. So, um, that makes yeah. sense. Yeah. Because the therapy, because I've treated both organic and engineered DID and it is different and the treatment feels really different. Um, and it's much, much harder when it's engineered because they actually program in roadblocks to healing which is not true in the organic, you know, there's, there's natural organic blocks to healing, but not things that have been conditioned in through torture to not remember and that kind of thing. And to stop remembering, right? Yes. Going back to your topic at ISSTD, when you presented, how do you connect the alliance and the relationship like you were just talking about to helping um, or people who have been through ritual abuse and um, dealing with connection and rupture and repair and all of that? How does it tie in? Well, it ties in because um, most therapists, well, all therapists really have what I call thresholds of belief. And um, 
no matter what level you're at in this work, you're going to have thresholds of belief because we all have belief systems about reality, right? Yeah. And so, right, so somebody like me, my th- threshold of belief is quite high because I've heard a lot, because I worked on a child abuse hotline, because I heard stories that the general population hadn't heard, and I knew, or I thought I knew, what was possible. Um, and also because I just grew up in California in the 1970s, <laughs> and I just, you know, I was exposed to a lot of different kinds of realities, you know. Um, <laughs> so, you know, my mind is very, like, open to alternative experiences of all kinds, um, but that is unusual, you know, most therapists didn't grow up in the Bay Area in the 1970s, and most therapists have not worked on a hotline where they've heard thousands and thousands of stories of abuse, and they haven't yet maybe processed what is possible in the darkness of human nature. Um, so this is what I say about thresholds of belief. They're largely unconscious and unknown. Like, we don't even know we have those thresholds until we encounter them and hopefully bring them to supervision. Um, those thresholds are culturally determined. Um, because right, if you are in a native American family and you talk about, um, you know, talking to the thunder beings and bringing rain, that's not a problem, but it's a huge problem. If you're in a psychiatric hospital and you're a white person in the United States, (laughs) 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 so these are culturally determined thresholds. Um, also consensual reality is a moving target. So when I first started in my career, Nobody was talking about reincarnation, but now the polls are showing that 30 to 40 percent of the American public believe in reincarnation, which is a pretty big shift, right? And some of that has to do with all the yogic teaching that's happened um, and permission to talk about those things. Um, And these thresholds give rise to countertransference. So when you hit a threshold in, and thresholds fall into three categories that I say horror, reality, and spirituality. Um, and of course those are all related, but though, when you hit one of those thresholds, you're going to have a counter-transference reaction to your client. Like it's going to, it's going to hit you physically. Like if you hit a horror threshold, like you hear something that you just never heard of, never conceived of, didn't think was even possible for humans to do to each other, you're going to, you're going to hit that counter-transference. And if you're not ready to deal with that threshold issue, you're going to respond inappropriately to your client. You're either going to freeze and dissociate, or you're going to disbelieve your client overtly (laughs) or covertly, or you're going to start crying or something that's really off-putting to your client where they can tell you're out of control and not able to be present for them. Um, and this quickly torpedoes therapy. So a lot of the, the clients that I get, um, just if we just take horror as one threshold, just understanding that, yes, you know, like uh, a group of people could be responsible for torturing a young child. I'm going to keep it. That's going to be triggering for some people, but I'm trying to keep it as vague as possible. Um, but yes, that actually happens and it can happen and it does happen. Then if you can digest that information as a clinician, then when your client discloses something like that to you, you can handle it and you can be present. You can stay present and not dissociate yourself in that moment. 
not judge them or not react in an inappropriate way. Um, but this is, this is a really hard thing for most clinicians to do. You know, a few months ago, I had a, a EMDR therapist called me for a consult and then basically dumped their client in my lap. That is not the it, same as a consult. No, no, I no, it's not at all. And I had said during the consult, I said, well, you've been seeing this person for X amount of years. I assume you're going to do a fairly lengthy termination. And then they didn't. <laughs> <laughs> then they they didn't they and it was in, incredibly damaging to this client who this therapist was basically the first person they'd entrusted with this sort of top secret information. Um, but the therapist just um, they went so far into their reaction they didn't even seek out supervision they didn't seek out things that would have helped them navigate an appropriate either continuation of the therapy or an appropriate closure of the therapy. And it started to feel like they were going to, I assume that the urgency came from a, a feeling of like that the therapist was going to kind of lose their mind if they didn't dump this client out quickly. Um, wow. And that's not okay. That's malpractice. You know, it's malpractice. So um, we really need to, sort of gird our loins, as you want to say, we need to prepare ourselves for what we might hear and how things we might hear might be so far out of anything we ever expected to hear when we became therapists. I'm just thinking of different stories that I've heard similar to that. And there's, it's such a deep violation and it's such a betrayal not just between the two people, but of the process. And mm. so then you're not just repairing a relationship with the client or the parts or whatever, but with the process to get them to even re-engage in the process itself with someone else. Yes. And it, it can be, the disconnect can also be, it, it's, it can also be more subtle than that. Um, for example, I had a client, who came to my class, um, they'd read my book, then they came to my class, and then, and only then, they felt safe enough to approach me about doing some therapy. And they had had a situation where they had actually had severe abuse, not as far as they knew by their parents, but by uh, another party that was in the community. But the therapist was very psychoanalytic and kept trying to get them to talk about their parents. <laughs> And, and it was enraging. It was incredibly frustrating and enraging. Like, I have this other thing I need to tell you about. Oh, but let's talk about your family of origin. Like, no, I need to talk to you about this other thing. This like horrible thing that happened to me in the community. Right. That is that kind of rigidity and, and directiveness is not helpful. And I don't know that therapist, but one, you know, it could be, that they were scared of the material the client was going to get into and sort of unconsciously shifted it back to a more comfortable area. Or it could be they were just so rigidly trained that they could not kind of wrap their head around the need to do something different. There was no flexibility you know? there. Right, right. So those kinds of ruptures, like this client told me later, they were like, um, I was never going to come back to therapy. <laughs> I had two therapists. They were, it was all both terrible. And I was actually never going to come back to therapy until I read your book. And then I saw that you were actually here in my state 
and then I came to your class and checked you out. So, I mean, thank goodness this person was able to re-engage. Um, but what you're saying is absolutely correct. It's like, it's not just, a, a, it's not just happening between two people. It's happening between an entire helping profession and your patient. If you torpedo their ability to, to get help because they feel betrayed, you've torpedoed their ability to maybe get help ever again from anybody. And that's, that is just a huge, huge violation and something we never, ever want to do. I was taught, this was sort of drilled into me at Beth Israel Hospital in Boston, like, if you do nothing else, they, they told me, if you do nothing else, leave your patient open to more therapy experiences. One of the reasons that we started the podcast was because of that rupture at a community level, part of it because of the way everything went down in the 90s, part of it because of situations like this, all kinds of reasons, but there's this whole rupture between clinicians and survivors and trying to bring that community back together a little bit and bring some healing to that. And after we interviewed you, um, we probably get 10 or 15 emails a week just about that episode and that someone has gone to get therapy after years of staying away from therapy because of a rupture, they did not know that repair was possible. Wow. Wow. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, it's it's a big, big thing. And now it's something like the community is talking about. And when when an issue comes up and someone's like, I try to get therapy, but I went to the therapist I was assigned and this terrible thing happened, people are like, but you can fix that. Go somewhere else. Talk to someone else. Or if it's an actual just issue, you can work out with that therapist. Like people are open to options differently than before in just a few months of this being a conversation. Wow, I'm so happy to hear that. Wow. Thank you for sharing that with me. Um, that make, that gives me hope. <laughs> that gives me hope. Because it can be. My One of my first questions with a new client is, you know, about previous therapy. And why are you here? What didn't work before? And let's talk about that. Um, because rupture is such a common experience um, with people who found that their trauma therapy trauma the therapy for their trauma didn't work um and you know that comes back to that idea that you know part of why that falls apart is that trauma a it's a new field and b um it really is a specialty field and i really have come to believe that the average bear the average therapist bear is not equipped to handle intense trauma work they're just not prepared and they, they, they need special skills. They, it's a degree of difficulty that's extremely high. And especially if you're going to see more than one, <laughs> you know. Um, so because it requires a level of ongoing self-care at all dimensions. So mentally, emotionally, spiritually, and physically to do this work. You have to be on your game about that. Um, or, or you're going to get eaten up by the work. So, um it's just like, you know, I compare it, I've compared it in the past to my husband being an interventional cardiologist. Like, you know, he goes inside of people's hearts and opens up blood vessels and puts stents in and it's millimeters of space. Like you cannot expect an ordinary doctor to do anything like that. 
it's very tricky, specialized work. Right. Um, and this, and so is trauma therapy. It's very tricky, specialized work, and people's lives hang in the balance also in this work. Well, and if you go to someone who's not prepared to handle that, then you are, I mean, there's something about knowing ahead of time, if I don't choose well, it's just a sort of a matter of time until there's another rupture. Like I'm setting myself up. And so not talking about ruptures just because it's painful leaves us closed off to the hope and repair if we talk about the pain of ruptures. Correct. And so sharing those stories and being more open about those stories a little bit. We've given on the podcast, we've given three examples of ours. Our first therapist, we were um, 17 and um, actually still in danger. And so we're actually, long story short, sent to our therapist for foster care, basically. And she was like, I can't be the foster parent and the, the therapist. And so we just didn't have therapy anymore. Like, that's what mm. happened when we were really too young to know any of the other layers involved or what was going on or not okay or okay. But then we just didn't have therapy. And then later in graduate school, um, I tried to get in therapy again. But it was a husband-wife team. And they thought that that was how to treat trauma, like with some kind of parenting thing. I don't know what that was, but they ended up getting divorced and like fighting through the session. Oh my gosh. And so it's awful. Yes. Right. Classic. And then as an adult going back to therapy, trying to find specifically a trauma therapist, someone responded, I'm a trauma therapist. So you go and you meet with them. And this person had so much of their own stuff going on like they were physically hot because of this and this and this so they wouldn't shut the door to their office so like we could what? not talk they wouldn't shut <laughs> yes no they wouldn't shut the door to their office so it was just open to the waiting room so we couldn't speak because we're like this is hard enough already we can't speak if the door is not physically shut <laughs> like oh my goodness and so because we didn't speak she used the time to like answer emails and call people back and so we were just paying for that and then ultimately she decided that because we were good at presenting that she should present with us and so again you we you can't you're our therapist like that's not you how can't it can do play that. out. No. And so she set up this thing, and so we stopped going to therapy, but then she got mad about that, so then we didn't have a therapist again. Like, <laughs> it, Wow, those are some pretty uh, big violations of the therapeutic contract that you're talking about. Right? And yeah. So, though, but, and so these are different things. We've Those are the three examples from our life that we've shared on the podcast since talking to you because – people aren't understanding repair because they're not understanding rupture. And like you said, it's not always such a big thing. Um, Sometimes it's something more subtle or sometimes it's, sometimes it's so subtle. It's just something that needs to be discussed. Like this is what I'm feeling. This is what's going on. Oh, this is, you know, whatever that disconnect is. And, and 
can be worked out, but people don't have language for it. And so that was something I so appreciated you sharing on the podcast about rupture and repair. Yeah, um, that's it's that's really good feedback for me, too, because I'm going to be giving a talk on this at the um, Social Work um, Leadership and Education Conference in the fall. Um, so I'm going to have a lot of like administrators and professors there and to kind of really, and this is what I mean about coming back to relationship as the cornerstone of therapy, because without that relationship, you got nothing. It doesn't matter what technique you're using. If the room's not safe, the client's not even going to be in the room. (laughs) Like they're going to be somewhere else and they won't be grounded and present for healing, which is your first job as a therapist is to create a safe container where people can start to become grounded and present in ways that they may never have been before. Um, And all relationships have rupture. I mean, I think as I'm getting to know, you know, I'm talking to people about friendships and spousal relationships. I think that relationship rupture and repair isn't, um, isn't really talked about. And, you know, the good old fashioned apology seems to have gone the way of, you know, I don't know. Right. Uh, abacus or something. <laughs> it's like people don't, <laughs> people don't, uh, like, you know, as, as people have gotten less religious, also like in the Catholic church, you have confession, which is now called reconciliation. But it's like, it's almost like a skill set that people never had in their family or no longer have. They don't understand the need for it. Um, and how, uh, like if we step on somebody's foot and say, like most of us, I think, if we accidentally stepped on somebody's foot, would just say, oh, I'm sorry, or excuse me, right? But if we accidentally step on somebody's feelings, uh, it's very rare for people to apologize. They're like, well, I didn't do it on purpose. And I'm like, doesn't matter. <laughs> you still did it. You got to fix the rupture that just happened, right? And that, and in therapy too, like we might do things by accident not on purpose or just that our, we're not considerate enough or thoughtful enough of our client. Like, um, in my first therapy early on, I didn't even know this would bother me. I came in one day and it just was obvious, like that the office, the waiting room hadn't been dusted and vacuumed in a long time. And it was really triggering for me. And I went and I mentioned it in therapy. The therapist didn't apologize or say, Oh, like, or at least to my memory, she didn't, she might've, but I, what I did remember was that the next week I came back, it was spotless. So I felt heard. I felt responded to, I felt like there was, um, care and concern and effort to re- make a repair there, you that's know, a, that's a even example. though it was a minor thing, it was a minor thing that nobody would put on their list of relationship rupture probably. But for me, for whatever reason, that was just really triggering. Right. And so it wasn't, you know, if, if people get their ego in their way, they're like, well, I didn't do it on purpose. And that patient needs to learn to live with blah, blah, blah. People are going to be messy. That's how there are some therapists would respond. That wouldn't have been a helpful response for me. What was a helpful response is that they were like, they got it together and they cleaned their office. <laughs> that, was, that was a response I needed to feel cared about in that setting, you know? Right. Just the words too. Not just the words. There was action. So if you're like saying I'm uncomfortable with your door being open, not that the door should ever be open anyway. I can't, I mean, that's just, again, that falls to me in the level of malpractice. Like you don't have therapy with your door open, like therapy one one. like you <laughs> create a safe container, <laughs> you know, like that's not a safe container, <laughs> but you apologize. And I go into detail in the book about how to apologize. Cause a lot of people don't even know how to apologize. Well, 
<laughs> so because it's just not a skill in our culture that we're good at. We're a somewhat, I'm at the risk of offending some listeners, we're a somewhat arrogant culture. So other cultures that I've been to, like India and China and other places, they're actually really, really good at this. It might not be sincere, but they're really good at it, if you know what I mean. That's funny. We are going to Africa tomorrow, actually. Um, we, Our oldest daughter, it, one of the 10-year-olds, is African-American, and her biological mother told her her whole first five years before we got her, um, before she came to us, told her that she was white. And when she was about five and a half, before her adoption was final, she looked at us one day in the middle of dinner and said, someone's going to have to tell my mom that I'm not white. <laughs> <laughs> like Aww. she had finally figured it out, right? But as yeah. she's grown up, because because we are very European, very white skin, we've had to work really hard to teach her what her story is because mm. – it was twisted from the beginning. It's not just that she is growing up with white parents, which is a whole different issue, but it, it was twisted from the beginning. And so we're not just having to catch up, but also undo some things. And right. at the same time, it's her story. It's not our story. And so what we can do is expose her to things and take her to museums and teach her about music and dance and all these different things that are cultural pieces but one thing that we did recently was do her DNA. And they were able, because so many people from her ancestors have done the DNA, they were able to track the tribe that she's from in Africa. Mm. And we were able to contact them. And through different connections, we know people who are safe and good and real there. And... It's an appropriate thing. And so we're actually taking her this week to Africa. And the reason I'm telling you this is what you said about apologizing and reconciliation and different cultures and places in the world. They are having like a full homecoming ceremony for her. Oh, wow. With the king of that tribe. Wow. And they're going to dance around her and they, they're all going to wear their native clothes and there's going to be fire, like this own, like a ritual in a good and positive way to welcome her home. And she's very happy with us and we adore her and all of that is going okay as far as trying to build attachment and maintain attachment and all of that. But this is a part of her story and an important part of her history. And all the other children, we still have visits with their biological families when it's safe to do so. Um, but no one from her family has ever come once. And so we are so excited to be taking her to Africa for her to see this and to be encircled literally by her people. That's powerful. It's like almost like an ancestral soul retrieval. Yes. Like reconnecting that lineage for her is going to be – and ancestral work in Africa is really important. So that's um, – what a beautiful – what a beautiful thing to have happen. And that's just like another example of, you know, you're responding in a culturally competent way, but you're also responding in a way where you set your, you know, cultural thresholds aside and say, 
Um, yeah, there's something kind of mysterious here that's important, and we're going to make this happen even if we don't completely understand it. Right. I had a client from uh, – it was one of the only – I've only seen two conversion disorder cases, and this was one of them, and this woman was from Africa. And when her mother had died, she wasn't able to go back for the funeral, and there's a lot of – very profound ceremonies that they do at that time and I and it has to do with the earth and it's like goes on for days and I asked her about that and when I was asking her you know what do you need to do to feel okay she's like I need to go back I need to go back to my tribe I you know which I don't know if that I only consulted with them for a couple times so I don't know if they were able to do that but she was married to a white man but she clearly had this piece that that I think white people don't have and don't understand because all of us who immigrated here got ruptured from our ancestors in some kind of way, right? That's why we're here, right. <laughs> you know. Um, and it's it's different for those cultures. It's different because they they have um, even though they've been invaded and whatever, they were still have these sort of unbroken ancestral ties and rituals that they still do that are on the positive side right and so i wanted i don't want to give ritual a bad name either so ritual abuse is abuse of those things that are powerful and rituals themselves i think are important and necessary for healing it's a powerful thing i think Mm-hmm. Wow. very powerful thing yeah what an interesting oh that's a beautiful thing Okay, so I would just say that, you know, the other two categories besides horror, um, I just wanted to touch on them, that are reality and spirituality. Um, so it's very hard for us to, I think, um, especially in this time where things have gotten so polarized and you're all good or you're all bad or your your belief sucks or your belief is the best, or right? And so it's making it a harder environment, I think, for therapists to navigate difference. Um, and we still need to work really hard at staying open to threshold, like knowing where our threshold is around, um, beliefs. Like, you know, you might be like a solidly atheist therapist who doesn't believe like in any, any God, any power, anything like that, but your clients might be having mystical experiences right and left. That does not mean they're psychotic. (laughs) And um, and I think clinicians know that, but things, you know, people can get pushed to the edge sometimes. Like if, if a very analytic science, I would say scientific because a lot of scientific people are open to mysticism, but if a very analytic, atheistic therapist is sitting with somebody who's seeing the ancestors gather around in the office and say things to them, I think it's going to be hard for that person not to see that as a hallucination. And we have to, like, maintain our cultural competence by knowing that about ourselves. Like, just knowing, like, yeah, I don't know what that is, I, and, and I don't think they're psychotic, and I don't know what it is, and I can be okay at, with my own discomfort about not knowing what this is, right? And the same with reality things. Like, um, I, you know, I think a lot of us are okay with visions. A lot of us are okay with a certain level of mysticism. A lot of us are getting more okay with realizing that there are these really dark groups, these organized groups that do bad things. But what if a client walks in and says they had an alien abduction experience or worked on a spaceship for 20 years and then had their mind reset to this time and place? Like, 
most of us, I think, would be like, well, okay, you're way over my threshold now. <laughs> like, that's just like, I cannot go there with you. Um, so, like, knowing where our thresholds are and and still being able to hold a level of presence and listening and containment, even when our client has just gone, you know, way over our threshold. Because my my own belief system is that the universe is a big place. The planet is a big place. <laughs> you know, I don't know everything there is to know about reality. I don't, I don't think anybody, I don't think any one person could possibly know everything there is to know about reality. Um, and entering into a patient's story is never a bad idea. It doesn't mean you're going to sign up, uh, you know, you're going to like, I don't know. You, it doesn't mean you have to move that into your life in the real world. Like you don't have to now believe in aliens or whatever, but you need to be able to enter into the patient's story in a believable way where they feel like you are with them because that is their story. That is really their story. And can we hold a space of not emotional neutrality, but genuine judgmental neutrality of like, I'm never, I'm neither for nor against the story. This is my patient's story and I'm going to help enter into that reality with them and help them. And I'm going to be able to tolerate doing that. That I think is our real task. Um, that is the task of working with these advanced cases. And that's a very hard skill. It's an advanced skill. It's something we have to continually work at, I believe. That makes sense. Mm -hmm. I think it um, goes back to relationships being so important and about attunement and all of those things that it's built on. It's where healing happens is in the connection. And the connection, if you think about parenting small children and if your three-year-old comes back and says, um, I saw a dinosaur playing with a monkey. <laughs> and you say, no, you didn't. Dinosaurs don't exist. Like, you have, what happens to your relationship with that child in, the, in that moment? Right. It's like, wah, wah, you know, <laughs> thumbs down, right? If you can join with that child in their imaginative world that is real to them, has a certain kind of reality to them, then you keep that, that connection going. Right. So it's just a question of, are we in service to the relationship? Are we in service to rupture repair? Because to me, I've never seen anybody heal without a solid connection in their therapy. So what does repair look like? Um, well, I wrote an entire chapter on that. Actually, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, It looks like a lot of things you have to, um, notice that something's amiss you have to track it you have to self-examine yourself in case you're feeling defensive you have to respond and you have to repair so repairs can be like you know in my case with the dusty office the repair was cleaning the office taking me seriously sometimes the repair needs a apology it always needs acknowledgement it just always needs acknowledgement that's because amazing. often behind the rupture is a misunderstanding. Like maybe your client, maybe nothing happened. Maybe you were just sitting there thinking about what your client said. And in their mind, you had done, you know, you were thinking something terrible about them. Like I had this autistic child who kept talking about my sneaky smile. And I was <laughs> like, my sneaky smile. I just found this child charming. 
And then I realized, oh, she's autistic. She's not processing my smile as friendly. She's processing it as sneaky because she doesn't really, she can't really feel it. And if I had, you know, gotten offended and pulled away from her story, that would have made the rupture even bigger. But instead I was like, oh, I'm sorry. Would it help if I keep my face more still? And she's like, yes. So then I did. I worked really hard at not smiling because that's what she needed in order to process during our sessions and not get, and she couldn't understand what I was doing because her brain wasn't reading that correctly. That's a beautiful example. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. You're welcome. (laughs) You're so welcome. I will come back anytime. I am so grateful. I really am. Fantastic. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you, Emma. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Your support of the podcast, the workbooks, and the community means so much to us as we try to create something together that's never been done before. Not like this. Connection brings healing. And you can join us on the community at www.systemspeak.com. We'll see you there.